We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11, finishing that section in 1 through 11, where Paul continues to establish the point and explain the reason that God's wrath towards sin would be totally justified. That was the, that's been the main point for a couple of weeks now, that God's wrath towards sin, towards sinners, is totally justified. And Paul has been explaining that. And, and he's building on the fact of why he was not ashamed of the gospel, as he said in verses 16 and 17, that, it was the, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. You see that saying even a couple times here, in our passage today, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. And we looked at last week, uh, Paul continued in verses 1 through 3 to explain why is God's wrath totally justified? Why? Because hypocrisy. Because the very thing that, that people judge others for are the very same thing that you do. Paul, again, he, he's addressing, we said that he has taken a wide lens in chapter 1. Wide lens, and he's beginning to narrow that lens and focus that lens. And the crosshairs of that lens, the focus of that lens, beginning in verse 17, is clearly going to be on the Jews. And as he narrows that lens, people begin to see themselves. And the Jews would have unashamedly proudly said, absolutely, those Gentiles, they are guilty of all that sin. God's wrath is totally justified upon them. They would have amended that. And yet they ignored their own sin. They would have highlighted the sins of others, and they would have lessened and ignored their own sin. And that's what Paul is getting at, and that's what he gets, begins to get at in verses 1 through 3, that therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself for the you practice the same things that you judge. Why is God's wrath justified? Because you, every single person is a sinner. That's what Paul is building to. He will make that abundantly clear in chapter 3. That's where all of this is headed, that the whole world, Jew, Gentile alike, is guilty of sin. He'll say it very clearly in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.9, he will make that clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks God. There is none who even does good. That's where this is headed. And as I've said, you know, why, why spend four or five weeks on, on God's judgment, on his wrath, on sin, because, because we will never appreciate the gospel if we don't first understand the, the desperateness and the depravity of ourselves. We, we'll never understand the treatment, the cure, if we don't understand that the disease that we had, the, the, the diagnosis that was placed upon us was terminal. This is not just a cough. This is not just something that'll pass. Sin, sin is why we die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. All of us have transgressed. All of us have sinned. All of us are worthy of death. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that alienation from God due to our sin, 
God has offered the gospel, a way for us to be reconciled, a way for us to be forgiven, a way for us to, all that Daniel, even in that last song, just sang about, to be adopted, to be forgiven. Namely, to be declared righteous. The issue, the issue with our sin is that we're not righteous. Only righteous people, we said it, only righteous people get to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Righteous people go to heaven. We said it a few weeks ago in Matthew 5.20. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit eternal life. The Pharisees were very externally righteous. They were very religious. They did outwardly all the right things. And Jesus fires a shot over the bow and says, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The point is this. We need a righteousness that is from outside of us. That's why Paul would say the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. How do sinners, how do unrighteous people become righteous? The gospel. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through placing your faith firmly in the gospel. Therefore, we'll see it, that God would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That, that's the dilemma. How does God, how does a righteous, holy God reconcile sinners to himself without becoming unrighteous in and of himself? How does he do that when the law demands that you and I as sinners deserve death? You know how he did that? By crucifying his own son. By crucifying his own son as a substitute. That whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be what? Saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God that was justly due your sin. That, that's what we've got to grasp. God's righteousness is totally just. And Paul is making a case for why all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, that's all humanity. Why is the wrath of God do our sin justified? And he's explaining that. And today we see this beginning in verse 4. And you see it on your handout. I believe Melissa filled in the... The points from, from last week and uh, this week on the back of that page, you see point number two from last week, building on last week. Last week we said that God's wrath was justified because of hypocrisy. That, the, that we who judge other sins, we commit the same sins. Therefore, God's wrath is just. Today, Paul continues to build upon that point, and he says this, that God's present and future wrath do sinners is totally justified in that people presume, the word there is presume, upon the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. And we plunge ourselves into even more sin, thus accumulating more wrath, instead of it leading to repentance. We presume, that that's, that's what Paul says there in, in verse 4, beginning in verse 4 as John read. Some of your translations probably say presume. Mine says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. To presume upon something is to think lightly of it. And, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying that God's patience with us is a testimony of his grace and his kindness and his mercy. It doesn't mean that he approves. But that's often what we think, right? 
We presume upon it. Nothing, no, and we say, oh, when nothing bad has happened, God must approve of me. No, not necessarily. God is leading you to repentance. We say, well, nothing, nothing bad happened. You know, the washing machine didn't break. The refrigerator didn't break. The car didn't break down. My health is still good. God must really approve of how I'm living. That No, that's not the case. And so we plunge ourselves into more sin. We plunge ourselves into living more and more for self. That's, that's what we do. And that's what Paul is saying. Therefore, the wrath of God is totally justified. You see it in your handout. God's grace is never a license to sin. It is a gift that is to lead us to repentance. God's patience with our sin, His kindness in the midst of our sin, the fact that, that, we, that God's grace and His reign, in Matthew 5.45 says it falls on the just and the unjust, it's to lead us to repentance, not to presume that God is pleased with us in and of ourselves. In 2 Peter 3.9, listen to what he writes. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Here's why. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. Why is God patient? Because His desire is for you to repent. It's not for you to think you can get away with your sin. It's not for you to think, oh, I've been forgiven. I prayed this prayer on such and such a date. Now I can live however I want to live. It's not, oh, I grew up in the church you know, I, I'm good. Oh, I, I know the lingo. I'm good. Oh, I do all these things. I'm good. That's not what he's saying. God is kind. He's tolerant. He's patient in order to lead you to repentance. Not for you to presume upon grace. Not for you to store up more wrath. I mean, think about this. Your, your refusal of the gospel and your unrepentance, you are actually storing up for yourselves more and more wrath. To stiff-arm the gospel. To refuse repentance. Paul is saying you're storing up for yourself, verse 5, wrath for the day of judgment. Every day that you stiff-arm the judgment of God, every, or the grace of God. Every day that you reject the gospel, non-believers. Every day. You're accumulating for yourself wrath. And again, he, he addresses that in verse 5. The, the, the problem is not with God and His character, nor His benevolence towards sinners. The problem is, as Paul says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. The word stubborn there, stubbornness, in, the, in, in my translation, it says stubbornness. The word there is the same word that we get, it's the same Greek word where we get our word sclerosis from. It's literally a, a hardening of your heart. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a, it's a change of mind. It causes us to turn from sin to, to, to God. Not just outwardly, and, and Corey will deal with that next week, but on a heart level. It's, it's a true sorrow over sin. And, and Corey did a masterful job this past Wednesday of talking to our students in what real repentance looks like versus just sorrow over our sin. There's a difference. Go to 2 Corinthians 7. There's a difference between feeling sorry about something and repenting. Just feeling sorry about our sin, the Bible says that leads to death. 
Repentance leads to life. And, and Paul paints a beautiful picture here for all of us of God's grace in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our hypocrisy, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our suppression of truth, that we saw in verse 18, in the midst of our exchange, like we saw in, in Romans 1 as well, in the midst of all of that grace. I mean, you think about this. Just, uh, I, I, I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I would say when I was 15, I, I really got serious, and I hate to even say that, that's a testimony of my own stubbornness, really became serious about following the Lord and, and digesting His Word and eating His Word probably when I was 20, 21 years old. And I thought about it this week. I tried to think about just to wrap my mind around all the sin that I had committed. Let's give myself the benefit of the doubt and say it was 15 years old. All the sin that I had committed against God from birth to 15. That God was patient. That God was tolerant of. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. God could have justly struck me down the second I sinned. And in His grace and His mercy, He didn't. And He guided me, He led me by His grace. By, by His grace, he, he, he opened my eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world, the things of this world, the, the money of this world, the fame of this world, all the allurement of this world that, that deadens us to our real need for a Savior. I, I, I got money in the bank. I have clothes. I have food. I have everything I need. Why do I need a Savior? That's Satan's lies. We, we studied a few weeks ago Hosea, the book of Hosea and and, and the beautiful picture there of Gomer, his wife, chasing after other lovers, even living with other lovers. And you see a picture in Hosea 2 and 3 of, of Hosea going and giving these other lovers money and resources to provide for his wife. And I was reminded that all the time that I pursued other things, all the time that I stiff-armed God, that I ran the other direction, God gave me grace upon grace upon grace to guide me to repentance. Hosea didn't do that to say, Gomer, keep committing adultery. Hosea did that to woo her back because he loved her. God's, God's kindness, His tolerance, His grace. Again, James, John 1 says, Of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's meant to lead us to repentance. It's not, meant to, it's not meant to, again, in our sinfulness, it hardens us to our own sinfulness, and we think, oh, God must be okay with me. That's not the case. And you look in verse 4, these words, you see them on your handout, just so we understand. And words are important, they have meaning. I, I want us to make sure we're, we're working with the same words here, we're understanding the same definitions. God's kindness there, you see it on your handout. God's kindness points to the common grace that He bestows on rebellious humans. He gives us air to breathe, food to eat, the ability, the ability to make a living, Beautiful scenery to enjoy, 
Again, I said it earlier, Matthew 5, 45 says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God doesn't just send his rain on believers. I mean, I mean we've talked about that before, but imagine that. You just identify believers because their yards are green. Their crops grow. You know what God in his graciousness does? He sends rain on everybody, the just and the unjust. Why? To woo you to repentance. That's God's kindness. God's tolerance there points to the fact that he, again, as we said, that he does not strike us dead the first time we sinned. That, that God woos us even in our sinfulness. The, the, fact that, the fact that the first time we didn't reject the gospel, the first time we rejected the gospel, imagine that if God just said, okay, you had your chance, you're out. No, it, how, think about it. The, when I repented of my sinfulness and I turned to Jesus Christ, by God's grace, that was not the first time that I had heard the gospel. And God sent person after person after person. In his grace, he, he put me at, at Amos P. Godby High School under the leadership of a band director. Listen, I was in band. I played the trumpet for seven years. I will tell you, why did I play the trumpet for seven years? Why was I in the band for seven years? Because it was an easy A. It came natural to me. I was lazy and played second chair trumpet, the second part, because I didn't have to work at it. I didn't have to practice at home. My mom was grateful because she didn't have to hear me practicing at home. And yet God in his gracious, what I was doing out of sin, what I was just being lazy with, God, God led me to a band director named Mike Walsh, who was the director of FCA. And at a, and at a camp in Mariana, Florida, R.V. Brown, who lives in this area, preached the gospel, and God, by his grace, took the blinders off my eyes. That Listen, very good kid. My parents will tell you, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Did all the right things, but I did it externally to please man, for myself, I didn't do it for the glory of God. Sin. God in his grace, his tolerance, led me to him. Again, God's patience there points to the fact that God is long on wrath, slow to anger. It, it, it's similar to his tolerance. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent to avoid the wrath of God do our sin. But listen, none of these are meant to make us be okay with sinning. None of, this are, none of these are meant to make us, to help us to be casual toward our sin. The goal of these is to lead us to repentance. And, and even in verse 4, I mean, look at, look, at, look at what it says, that how God bestows these things upon us, the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience. Not just stingy, God gives us these things richly. But the problem is, in our sinfulness, we mistakenly think that because we have clothes on our back, and because you know, we have health, and because we have all these things, the world numbs us, Satan numbs us, blinds us to the fact that we need a Savior. That these blessings do not mean that God is pleased with you in and of yourself. You're in need of a Savior. And again, hard hearts. 
We, 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 we lie to ourselves. We, we stiff-arm God's truth that we're not really that bad. We're not as, again, the Jews would have said this, oh, we're not as bad as the pagans. We're not as bad as the Gentiles. The reality is this, the Gentiles aren't the barometer. And God doesn't judge you based on your neighbor's unrighteousness. And he doesn't judge on a sliding scale. That's the whole point. We'll get to it again in verse 11. He'll reiterate it. God's not partial. He doesn't play favorites. Oh, well, Chris, you, you preach the gospel uh, faithfully, hopefully, at, at Odessa for all these years. I'm going to give you a pass. That's not what he said. Oh, your parents were this. Oh, you did this. So No, no, no. God is not partial. Here's the deal. The, the rule is the righteousness of God. Do you measure up to the righteousness of God? Are you perfect? And the problem is, we saw it in verses 1 through 3, self-righteously, we begin to judge ourselves based on other people. And we typically, typically, we find people that are worse than we are. Right? We, we typically find somebody that's about one or two rungs under where we are on the ladder, and we, we judge ourselves according to them. Well, I'm better than them. Well, I do more than them. Again, that's part of our hardness of hearts. That's part of the hypocrisy. See, because our neighbor's not the standard. God's righteousness is the standard. And that's even what he's going to get into here. I'm not 100% sure what... It, Paul could be saying one of two things here, as we'll get into it in verses 6. But he says, look at your works. If we're not careful, we'll look at our works and we'll think, oh, I measure up. Why? Because my works are more than his works. My works are more than her works. Well, I give more than that person. Oh, that person gives 10%. I give 12%. But that's not the standard. And if you hear me say only one thing today, I, I, again, I... I know I go on and on, but I, I, I want you to get this. I, I, I want you to hear this thing, this point right here, and it's on your handout. God's purpose behind his kindness and tolerance and patience is not to excuse sin, but to stimulate repentance. It is not to make us casual toward our sin. Again, the security of a believer, the eternal security of a believer is not meant to cause you to be casual. I mean, I'm a sports guy and, and, and I love sports and I see these, you know, I, I, I see the, you know, these fully guaranteed, I mean, Bryce Harper, 13-year, fully guaranteed, $330 million contract. Listen, you know what human nature is the day after you sign that contract? Press the snooze button. That's human nature. I got, I got 300. That, that brother has $330 million coming to him over the next 13 years regardless. I mean, think about that. Hey, Chris, no matter how you preach the next 13 years, we're going to give you $330 million. Amen. Amen. Think about it. What's human nature? But that, my point is, we laugh at that. Don't we do that with God's grace? Oh, I've been adopted. Oh, I've been saved. Oh, I did this. I did this. I can... No, that's not the point. You think the Phillies gave Bryce Harper $330 million 
expecting him to do less, perform less than he did before they signed him? No. It's to motivate him. God's grace is to motivate us, to drive us to repentance, never to be casual with our sin. And listen, that speaks to whether you're a believer or not today. The same temptation lies there, to become casual with our sin. Think about in marriage. Karen and I said, I do. June 28th, 03. You think, you think she expected less? Oh, well, now that I said I do, you go do whatever you want to do, Karen. I'll do whatever I want to do, and it's just, hey. No, that's not the point. God's kindness, his tolerance, his patience is to stimulate repentance. Not to be casual with sin. Listen to what Paul says in, in Titus 2. He makes this very clear in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Listen to what Paul writes. For the grace of God, listen, what's the, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God has made a way for your sin to be forgiven. Listen, God's grace, continuing in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What is the grace of God meant to do? Stimulate you to deny ungodliness and to pursue him freely. Same as in a marriage. Karen and I are free to pursue each other and have the best marriage we can. Why? Because we took vows to do that. We're free to do that. It's not a works-based thing. We vowed to do that. Our vows didn't encourage foolishness. It wasn't to encourage marital infidelity. It was to stimulate fidelity. It was to stimulate a freedom to go pursue one another and to pursue the glory of God in the months, knowing this, that when we mess up, look, forgive each other and move on because we vowed to do that. That's God's grace. It's not meant to cause us to be casual to our sin. And listen, that's the deadly temptation for all of us. Just like we said last week, the temptation is even as believers for us to, to begin to lessen our own sin and harshly judge the sins of others. That's a deadly temptation. But there's another de deadly temptation, even for believers, is to presume upon God's grace. And, and Paul furthers this point in verses 6 through 11 he, when he says, Who will render, again, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For there is no partiality with God. Here's the point. You see it on your handout. The same wrath. The word there is same. That Gentiles stored up for themselves do their sin is the same wrath Jews stored up for themselves in their own sin. No partiality. 
Same point we've seen running through all the way back to verse, chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is just. There's no partiality. That this, this point brackets even this entire section. Verse 6, verse 11, no partiality. You are going to get what is justly deserving. God is just. And specifically in this context, we have to be careful. We love to run to our own application. Specifically in this context, Paul is putting forth here that, look, nationality, ethnicity doesn't get you a pass. That does not get you in and of itself. You are not exempt from the judgment of God due to your ethnicity, due to your nationality. It's a hard issue. It's a sin issue. And again, God has a standard for every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, and it's this, perfection. If you're not perfect, you need a Savior. Nobody was excused. The Jew was not excused of their sin simply because they were Jewish. And Paul is going to deal with this specifically in Romans 3, 20-26. Only faith in Christ saves. Again, it's a righteousness that comes from faith, as he said in verse 17. And Paul's point is that not even the Jewish nation who had the law, who were externally, let's say, righteous or religious, externally possessors of the law, even those fall short of God's righteousness. Why? Because none of them could have said that they were perfect. None of them could have said that they perfectly persevered in in performing the law. None of them. And because of that, works won't save you because you're not perfect. James deals with this. He says, listen, if you break one commandment in James 2, he says, if you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Think about that. You see the call for perfection? You can't self-righteously say, well, I did all of this, but you failed here. Perfection. And none of us are perfect. None of us have obeyed perfectly. Romans 3.28, Paul's going to say this. Listen, in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man, and that's a man, woman, people, are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Why? Because nobody performs the law perfectly. Galatians 3.24, Paul says the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. Here's what the law says. Every time you would come to the law, be tempted to come to the law and look for your righteousness, you would see that you fall short of the perfection that it required. You fall short of God's righteousness. Therefore, here's the point. I need help. I need, I need somebody to perform. The, I need somebody to be perfect on my behalf. You need a substitute. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is, a substitute. You, you, the law was simply a tutor. It was simply meant to show you, to expose to you, hey, this is God's perfect character. You can be 98% correct, but you fall short on 2%, therefore you're not perfect. 
And I think all of us would admit that here's the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy. If we're all, look, we may have good days, we may have bad days. We may have good minutes, we may have bad minutes. We can't judge ourselves based on our good days and forget the bad days. We can't judge ourselves on the good minutes and forget the bad minutes. God demands perfection. And here's what he's saying. If you, hey, listen, you want to judge yourself based on your works, do them perfectly. And if you fall short, you got a problem. Again, do you see why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? You see the goodness? God is saying to you, you can't be righteous in and of yourself. I'm going to have to do it for you. And I did do it for you. 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Why the gospel? Because you and I need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Because we don't perform deeds perfectly. And, and the law will not save you. Because we fall short. I remember when I was in high school, I, I, I played basketball. It became very apparent that that was not going anywhere really quickly. Um, but my ninth grade year, I played basketball. We had a really good team, and, and I, I could shoot. I know that's probably hard for you to believe, but I could shoot really well especially the free throw line. Now, I didn't get to the free throw line very often because I couldn't dribble, but like, if you would not guard me behind the three-point line, I would make the baskets. That's all I'm saying. I could shoot. I remember, I remember they did a, a, you know, a, 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 a fundraiser thing where it was like, get some people to pledge for all your free throws. 53 throws. Well, I made 49 of them. And then I looked down the sheet, I'm like, what moron pledged that amount per free throw? It was my dad. My point is this, though. 49 out of 53 throws, that's pretty impressive. Is it perfect? Close. It's not perfect. Guess what? We need somebody to shoot the free throws for us in that case. If, it needs, if you need 50 out of 50, I needed somebody to shoot the free throws for me. I needed a substitute. And at the same time, I think Paul is saying that, but at the same time, I think what he's saying in, in verses 6 through 11, what he might be hinting at, and I'm not sure he's saying one or the other. He may be saying both here at the same time. Faith of works flow from faith. It's not that works don't matter at all. It's not, it's not that at all. It, Leon Morris said this. Listen, this is a deep quote, but Leon Morris, a, a, a commentator um, on Romans, he said, it is the invariable teaching of the Bible and not the peculiar viewpoint of any one writer or group of writers. He's saying that overall, all the Bible states this, that judgment will be on the basis of works through salvation is all of grace. Works are important. Listen, here's why. They are the outward expression of, of what the person is believing deep down. In the believer, they are the expression of faith. In the unbeliever, the expression of unbelief. 
and that whether by way of legalism or Antonium, an, Antonianism. Works simply expose what we really, really believe. See, because I could say I believe all day something, but do you really believe it? You act on, we act on what we really believe. And listen, throughout Scripture, whether it's Proverbs 24, 12, it says that he will render to each man according to his work. Psalm 62, 12, loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with angels, and we pay every man according to his deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Galatians 6, 7, and 9, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. There is an element there. How we live our lives, what is that saying? How we live our lives matters. And, and Paul, Paul gets at this even in verses 7 through 10. For those who by perseverance in doing good for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Is that what you're seeking? Glory in the Lord. Glo Just like Daniel saying this morning, is the, is the aim of your life the glory of God? Or, verse 8, is it selfish ambition? He's getting at the why behind everything you do. Is it for yourself? See, I can, I can come up here and try to preach an exegetically sound, solid sermon, but I can do that just so y'all say, man, that guy knows what he's doing. Or I can, beg, I can beg all week that the Lord will take my words and will speak truth through me and take the words of his word through me and speak to your hearts. Therefore, he'll get the glory. You see the difference? I can do everything right externally, but for the wrong reasons. And, and God's judgment will be, will be just. No person, what he's saying is this, nobody gets a free pass. Even if you want to go to the law and judge yourself, are you perfect? You, know, you, want, to, you want to talk about deeds? Stack them up to perfection. If you want to go that route. And what Paul is saying is that, listen, no person because of their ethnicity or any other reason is going to receive special treatment from the Lord. There's coming a day, Hebrews 9, 27, is appointed to all men to die once and after that to face judgment. And, and are we, are you, I mean... Think about that. Are we seriously going to stand before the Lord and try to stack up our works considering the unrighteousness that's also in our hearts? Again, none are righteous. And I think what Paul is saying is it, it, it could be one or either of those things. It could be a combination of both. That Jews miss the mark altogether 
exposing their need for the gospel, or simply that being a Jewish person and doing good things is not enough to merit eternal life. Either way, here's what he's saying. It's faith. Again, the gospel, is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a righteousness that comes by faith. And then the works that we do, the life that we live as an overflow of that is faith. Listen, I get it. Non-believers come into here and they hear me talk about sins. Whether And I, I feel like in my heart of hearts I tried to be as fair as I could in making sure we don't treat one sin more harsh than the other. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's adultery, whether it's deceit, whether it's gossip, whether it's disobedient to our children. Here's the point. Why do I stand up here and call those things sin? Faith. Faith in this word. God's word clearly say those are sin. Faith. And Hebrews 11.6 says without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must listen. Believe that he is. It doesn't stop there, but also, listen, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's not just simply, well, I believe God is. No, no, a rewarder of those who seek him out of faith. Faith. Why do I preach this word? Faith. In faith, I believe that this word is true. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one, John 14, 6, comes to the Father but through him. I believe that with all my heart, but it's faith. Hebrews 11, 1 says this about faith. You say, well, what does that mean, Chris? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Here's what I believe. I believe one day there's coming a day where my faith will be made sight. That what I believe by faith today in that of Jesus Christ will one day be clearly presented to me in sight. That's faith. And because of that faith, in faith, I seek to conform my life to his word, to his glory. Not to earn my salvation, not to merit my salvation, but because of my salvation. And the either way here, what Paul is saying is, again, faith is the issue. The Jews don't get a pass simply because of their heritage. That there will be an element, we will stand before the Lord and we will give an account for how we lived our lives, even as believers. Why? In faith. In faith. Did we seek Him? And the danger for every single person in this room, believer and non-believer alike, is to do all the right, seek to do all the right things externally, but for the wrong reason, or to self-righteously overvalue what we do and think somehow that's going to merit eternal life. And Paul gets at that in verse 8. Again, God's wrath comes to those who were selfishly ambitious. Even in Matthew 7, he talks to the Pharisees and they say, look, he says, not everyone who claims to be mine is mine. They come to him and say, hey, didn't we do all this? Didn't we do all that? We did all these great works. And he says, depart from me. Why? I never knew you. 
You go read Matthew 6 and 7. Everything they did, they did the right things, but they did them for the wrong reasons. And we as believers, Corey's going to get at this next week, what marks us off today as believers is possession of the Spirit. The possession of the Spirit. Hebrews 1.13 says it, it, that, that's the deposit. What marks us off? The Spirit. The Spirit of God. That's why in Romans 8, he'll say, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16, the same thing. We live by yielding ourselves to the power of the Spirit. How do we do that? The Colossians 3, 16, the Word of God richly dwelling in us. That which is in us begins to control us. That's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5, 18. Um, be, but do not walk, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit. What does wine do when you get a lot of it in you? What does it do? It controls you. That's what he's saying. You get a lot of the Word in you, guess what begins to control you? The Word. Even Galatians 5, 22, the fruit of the who? Spirit is in contrast to the fruit of the flesh. Even, even our works, become, again, are, are done in the power and to the glory of God. And Paul, what Paul is saying this, faith is the issue. You see, it in Paul is making the case here for the universal powerlessness for any person, regardless of their ethnicity or heritage, to merit a right standing on their own. That's all I'm saying. And Corey is going to further this point next week with, with regards to the Jews specifically. Nope. Listen. Here's the point. There is no partiality with God. God is just. He is fair. Nobody is going to get a pass on their sin due to themselves. E even the privilege that the Jewish people had did not put them in a position to not have to deal with their sin. And everyone, you see it there in your handout, everyone will receive from God what they justly deserve based on their response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to, listen to 2 Thessalonians, where Paul says almost the same thing as we have here. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. For, for after all, it is only just, there's your word, for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Listen, verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection in knowing God and obeying? You go to John 3.36, he says the same thing. Believing and obeying. These, verse 9, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from His glory and power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on the day to be marveled at. There's a day coming where we're going to give an account for our lives. And the only way to, I'm, I'm saying this because, again, out of love, the only way to avoid the wrath of God on that day, the only way to avoid eternal damnation, eternal uh, outside of, of the presence of God for all eternity, 
is to be believing upon Jesus Christ for your righteousness. To stiff arm that is to simply store up for yourself more wrath on that day. There's coming a day if you persevere in refusing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will die like everybody else. I said in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to all men to die and after that to face judgment. Every single person in here is going to give an account for their lives. Every single person in here is going to have to deal with their lives. And I think it cuts both ways. Believer, what did, you, what did you do in response to this salvation, this great grace that God gave you? Non-believer, what did you do with the everyday grace that God showered upon you every single day of your life? Breathing His air, enjoying His creation, using the skills and the abilities that He gave you? That's clear. And the logic here, just to put it simply, I try to logically put it simply on our handout there, just to follow where Paul has gone in these, all these verses, even back to verse 18 of chapter 1. God's judgment rightly falls on everyone who do these things. If you do these things, Paul is saying God's judgment rightly falls upon you. Then he goes on to say that even those who claim to be self-righteous do these things. So the logical conclusion is this. Everyone rightly, and here's the word, stands under God's judgment due to their sins and are in need of a righteousness out from outside themselves. Paul is, again, he's making the case. The only way, again, you'll see it in your handout, the only, we will only deeply cherish the gospel once we accurately see our sin, and that's, God's whole, that's Paul's whole point. To accurately grasp our sin. Even, listen, it's real quick for us to say, yeah, I hope non-believers are listening. No believer. Accurately understand your sin. Don't, don't, don't self-righteously listen to this and think about other people. Accurately grasp your sin. And you'll cherish the gospel. And, and Paul here again, as I said, he's narrowing his focus here to the Jews. But I, but I think there's an application for us in here today as uh, no matter whether we're a believer or not. And, and you see it there on your handout as I close. The, the challenge for every single one of us in here is to show, is the, the, the temptation for us is to show contempt. The word is contempt for God's grace. Show contempt for God's grace. And it can look differently in different people. But the issue is still the same, contempt for God's grace. And I believe that Paul is putting everyone on equal footing here before the cross. Every one of us is unrighteous, worthy of wrath. Just because you grew up in church, just because you can write the sites of stories, just because you, you can tell the gospel, just because you can give some facts about who Jesus is, just because you pray, just because you do good things, don't be deceived. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I give you on your handout a couple ways that we show contempt. We can show contempt for God's grace by thinking that because of something inherent in us 
or something we do or do not do, we are sinners in desperate need of a righteousness for God that only comes from faith. Or we are not sinners. We begin to think that because of something about us, something we do or do not do, that we're, we are not sinners in need of grace. That only comes through faith. We can be tempted into self-righteously crushing other people's sin, all the while belittling our own. And when we do this, we prove that God's wrath is just. Again, hypocrisy. But, but at the same time, we can show contempt for God's grace in this, that, that not thinking, not thinking, the word there is thinking, not thinking our sin is a big deal because God is forgiving or because of anything we do or do not do even after salvation. That, that we can do anything we want to do, we can live however we want to live, because we're saved eternally. Because of grace. And I think we've clearly shown that that's not the point of grace. We have been freed. God did not open the, the orphanage doors and set us, or the prison doors, however you want to say it, and set us free and say, hey, I hope it works out. He adopted us. He's taken us in as his own. And how we steward our lives, even as believers, matters immensely. Do not fall in the trap of thinking, well, I can just live however I want to live. I got this get-out-of-jail-free card in my pocket, and I'll just show it on the day of judgment, and nothing will matter. That's not the gospel. Sin is serious. Whether you're, listen, whether you're a believer or not, sin is serious. Hate your sin. That is why God has unleashed the gospel. Because sin is serious and all of us fall short. And all of us justly were due the wrath of God, due our sin. And, and in response to that, you see the last fill-in. Trust in the utter fairness of the God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and never take this grace lightly. Look to the gospel. Listen, whether you're a believer or not in this room today, my, my point to you is this. Look alone to the gospel. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you set the gospel aside. Look alone to the gospel. And listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what I would say to you. Look to the gospel. By faith, I pray that God, again, would take the blinders off of your eyes to the truthfulness of this gospel. That there is salvation found in none other than Jesus Christ. That is what we believe as Christians. Why? Because the Bible says it. We believe it in faith. And I would beg you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, look to Christ. Be reconciled to God through Christ alone. 